Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We start out a brand new week uh, here at GPB News, and always glad to have you with us uh, today. Of course, a lot to talk about. Uh, we have a panel of distinguished political science professors with us today, and I'm excited about hearing their observations on a number of stories in the news. Uh, uh, Adrian Jones, professor of political science and director of pre-law at Morehouse College, is with us. Adrian, you're having a very busy semester, I think. Am I right about that? It is. It is. Um, we've moved back inside, although we're masked and attempt to be distant at Morehouse. I think we do a pretty good job in AEC of that. Um, But I think coming back from the pandemic, from being at home, um, has meant sort of a new level of energy at the college. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're very happy that you could be with us today. And uh, you are going to be joined on the panel by two political science professors from the University of Georgia, Charles Bullock, who is the Richard B. Russell Chair in Political Science at UGA, among other titles that uh, you hold there, Chuck. Um, You know, I I don't think we talk often enough when you come on this show about the vast experience you bring to your position and you bring to us when you do Political Rewind. You've essentially been teaching at UGA with a couple of uh, years in different places since 1968, and you don't even seem that old, Chuck. That's awfully kind of you to say. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad that you could join us. Um, and Audrey Haynes is back with us, professor of political science also at UGA, and the director of the Applied Politics uh, program, which trains students for careers in politics. And Audrey, you pointed something out to me, uh, uh, that it was Charles Bullock, Chuck Bullock, who founded the Applied Science, uh, Political Science program, uh, politics program. Yeah, the way it worked was, you know, Chuck has been doing this for so long and he saw a real need. And I'll mention, I was an undergrad here at the time that Chuck was actually teaching. (laughs) And uh, he was as beloved uh, as he is now. And, um, you know, Chuck saw a real um, hole in terms of how we prepare students to go out there into the world. We give them lots of knowledge, but there's a lot of practical skills we don't. And he also ran the GLIP program and single-handedly was finding uh, all kinds of internships for students back in the day. So, you know, we always um, try to get Chuck into the classroom with our applied politics students because he is wonderful. Well, I'm really glad to have the two of you and, um, of course, Adrian as well. I do want to start, uh, uh, Audrey, with mentioning that uh, it's another big day for the city of Athens, Georgia. You just were able to celebrate the University of Georgia's national championship victory. But now Matthew Stafford, former University of Georgia quarterback who languished for 12 seasons at the Detroit Lions, losing seasons, never won a playoff game, leads the Los Angeles Rams to a Super Bowl victory 
uh, last night in what turned out to be a very exciting game. And not only do you have Matthew Stafford, but Sean McVay, the youngest coach to win a Super Bowl, uh, st- he, he started his football career right here in uh, Atlanta at Marist. By the way, his dad was my boss at Channel 2. His, his dad, uh, Tim McVeigh, was general manager at Channel 2. But the Stafford victory has to be a big deal to people in Athens, I would think, Audrey. It is, and it is especially to people who know him. I will say that I am happy to claim a connection to Matt, and that was that he was actually in one of my classes. I taught him in the Introduction to American Government, and I have the singular memory of Matt coming up to the podium after class and saying, thank you, Dr. Haynes, that was a really great lecture. Nice to meet you. He was just a really nice student, and he also enjoyed a lot of you know, love and respect from his peers, Um, you know, the people that he played with. He was just a genuinely nice and very intelligent young man. Charles, uh, you're one of the uh, few who can say they were around uh, for the 1980 UGA championship. Now you've got this one this year, plus Matthew Stafford, Chuck. That's right, yeah, and uh, I can't claim to have been around for the 1942 championship. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Adrian, I I know this seems like a leap, but with the federal hate crimes trial starting in Brunswick today for the three men convicted of murdering Ahmaud Arbery, there actually is a strong connection to Matthew Stafford. And let me explain it, and then I want to turn it over to all of you to talk about the uh, federal hate crimes crimes trial. In September of 1980, Matthew Stafford, in the aftermath of uh, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, wrote a very powerful essay. And at a time when the NFL was under some fire for the players who were protesting police violence, Matthew Stafford wrote a very powerful essay in which he said, I love football, but now there are more important things to talk about. We have to deal with what's happening with police violence. And he said, these are not political problems. These are human problems. It should not be seen as a political statement to discuss this honestly. And I'm sure there are people out there who simply don't want to hear it. But let me just tell you a quick story. And here's the story you told Adrian. When the pandemic hit, he brought his receivers to a football field in Atlanta to work with them. The first players who came down was a white uh, player, and they worked out at this field, which he'd gotten permission to use, and the practice session went well. But then a week later, four of his African-American receivers came down, and Stafford and the four of them were confronted by a man They hadn't even put on their cleats who said, you are trespassing, get off this property now or I'm going to call the police. And the man did call uh, the police. And Stafford said it was a shocking moment for him in understanding uh, racism close up. So, Adrian, that's a connection in a a kind of an off-track way to the trial that's about to unfold in Brunswick. I mean, the point here is whether or not this murder was based upon race, right? If it was because Ahmaud Arbery was a black man. And um, the fact of the matter is that for black people, um, this is not unusual. This is not an unusual event, the one that Matthew Stafford described, um, nor is 
unfortunately, the situation that happened with Ahmaud Arbery. Um, there is a presumption that Black people are in the wrong place, that they do not, they are not entitled to be in particular spaces, um, that their personhood is not as important and therefore can be challenged um, very quickly and easily. And so um, I've been thinking about, you know, how do they prove this when it is such a pervasive phenomena? I mean, I don't even know that we need to drill down to assume that people understand across our nation that um, black people, their bodies, their thoughts um, are less welcome basically in all spaces um, than majority citizens. Chuck, um, we know that in the murder trial itself, the state murder trial, uh, the prosecutor decided that she would be better off not raising issues of whether or not race was a motivating factor. That, in fact, just the facts of the case, the way that Arbery was tracked down, cornered, and then shot to death w- w- was enough to convict them. And she was right. Um, and now, with the federal hate crimes trial starting, there are observers out there, experts on the law, some uh, criminal attorneys saying, this is a very, very tough case uh, to prove. Uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch how it unfolds, Chuck. Well, it is, yeah. And uh, I'll make this as a side note. There is also a UGA connection to this trial. Lisa Godby mm-hmm. Wood graduated from UGA, mm-hmm. and I taught her while she was here. So <laughs> she's, uh, the, she's the, tri- the judge in this trial. Yeah, right, go right. ahead. She's the judge. Uh, she is probably the senior most judge. She was down there in that southern district of Georgia. She uh, was appointed to a federal judge as a very young woman. But, yeah, uh, what, what we're told is that it's hard to make this kind of case. Now, again, what we're hearing is that there is material in which the younger uh, man, the man that actually killed Ahmad Aubrey, uh, in his uh, social media postings, uh, you know, has used racial slurs. And so that probably is probably evidence to be put on to indicate a certain frame of mind, a certain attitude against uh, about African-Americans. If you don't have that kind of evidence, say for the other two, the father and then the neighbor, then that might make it very difficult. So it seems to me it's possible maybe get some kind of split decision out of this. Maybe it's easier to prove the case for one or maybe the father's son than it would be for the neighbor. But again, we'll have to see this. I was surprised that they were able to get a jury as quickly as they did. And they brought in a thousand mm. in the jury pool. And it's hard to imagine anybody who would be called into that jury pool who wasn't well-versed in this case. So, so I was impressed that they were able to move as quickly and begin with opening arguments today. Yeah, it's true. They've now got, as of this morning, there were 64 people left, and they expect to whittle those down and use the preemptory challenges quickly so that they, the uh, opening arguments would begin late today. Um, Audrey, um, the AJC, in writing its story about this this morning and talking about Brunswick, uh, used the word bracing. Brunswick is bracing for this trial. And I mention that because um, we, are, we are likely to hear some really ugly, ugly uh, uh, information about the way in which at least the youngest Arbery, Travis Arbery, thought about uh, black people. And it might be very difficult for some people 
to uh, hear some of the things that are going to be said. And who knows what kind of, of anger on both sides it could provoke. Well, and, and I would argue that um, I know at least Brian's attorney has made a move to uh, strike that um, evidence out. They actually had a hearing behind closed doors because they didn't want to you know, discuss that. And, you know, the case in point is perhaps this is um, uh, somewhat similar to some of the prior cases that we've had, like with George Floyd and so on, in the sense that until people see it, until people hear it, they don't really recognize that it is real, you know, and when they see or hear that it is real, it may be difficult, but it may result in a lot of uh, learning and perhaps accountability for those types of actions. But um, it, I think it is highly unlikely that they will not include that. Um, in particular, the one um, racial slur that was uttered uh, by um, Travis McMichael, the, the, the young, the son, when after Arbery was shot and laying there and bleeding out, he utilized an extreme epithet that um, actually uh, was reported by Brian, not used as evidence in Georgia, but is likely going to be used in this case. Yeah, in the state trial. Adrian? Um, I mean, I think that's, that activity, for example, is one of the reasons why you know that um, racial animus um, animate these kinds of events, right? Even if the person doesn't necessarily consider themselves to be racist. Um, we're looking right now, for example, at these debates about critical race theory, which I can't even believe I just said that, <laughs> debates about what critical race theory is supposed to be. I feel like it's being substituted um, to remove discussion of important history that's related to what we're talking about right now. Um, and one of the things that we've experienced since the civil rights movement, I think, is this very quick exhaustion, right? We're, we're tired of dealing with this race issue. Um, so, you know, why do we have to deal with talking about whether people are racist? We're, we're past this. And the fact of the matter is that we are not and that we need to understand our history and where we came from so that we can understand um, how people end up expressing this kind of vitriol that later they insist has nothing to do with them. Um, it has to do with all of us. And um, this kind of thing needs to be addressed. Um, you know, I, I do not think, I think it is excellent, for example, that this federal case has been taken. Um, you know, we rarely see people being challenged about taking responsibility for these kinds of death. Um, so, I, Adrian, l let me ask you and then, then ask uh, Ch Chuck and Audrey to comment on this. Um, I thought about the, the, the debate going on now in the General Assembly about what our children are taught in school, and as you point out, this effort to ban the teaching of critical race theory. But which we know isn't even taught in K through 12 schools, but but it's more than just critical race theory. It's not we we should ban teaching some of the legislation that says that makes people feel uncomfortable, feel guilty, feel like they are part of a problem that's historical and not related to the current day. And and I thought about it if you were teaching a current events class right now in Georgia or a political science class. And this uh, bill had become law, 
I wonder if you could even teach about the trial going on in Brunswick right now, because it would certainly make some students very uncomfortable to think that they, like the white men who are being accused of a racial hatred crime, uh, maybe they have something in common with them. I mean, if the litmus is going to be discomfort, I mean, can you speak about any topics in classes? I would definitely have a a difficult time. Um, And, you know, the name of the case is escaping me, but, you know, right after, you know, in the late 1890s, there's a case where the court basically says, you know, when are we going to stop giving special treatment to black people? I'm saying this is 10 minutes after slavery. Now it's 2022. So, um, you know, the argument that, <laughs> that this is an old issue that is no longer a problem um, is even more persuasive when people in real time are clear that that is not the case um, and that this kind of material, historical material, does need to be taught. Now, at Morehouse, I'm going to be able to talk about the trial. Right. Chuck? Yeah, this is part of this much broader concern that no one could ever feel uncomfortable about anything. So trigger warnings and also the idea that uh, NPR regularly says, we're going to have a story here and some people may find the events we're going to report troubling. So it's part of that much broader concern. But any kind of issue dealing with controversial subjects, yeah, somebody may feel uncomfortable about. You know, whatever it is you bring up, you know. <laughs> And especially if we get beyond simply laying out the facts, because part of being a social scientist is not even to say, here are the facts, but then to try to offer explanations, because, all right, we're seeing these events happen because here are a set of motivations, et cetera, et cetera. So once you probe into that, then, yeah, you you may well end up stepping on somebody's toes and making them feel uncomfortable as you reveal to them, you know, that this is not just something that kind of came out of the air, instead they're motivations that people are doing this because they see themselves gaining an advantage in some way. So, you know, this is uh, one of those kinds of uh, statutes that, you know, I would think would be uh, almost completely unenforceable as well as being misguided. Audrey? Well, I would just chime in that, you know, as, as human beings, our bodies let us know when something's wrong with pain. And, you know, just like societies. If you don't know that something's wrong, you can never fix it. If you don't feel awkward, if you don't feel that pain, then you don't know uh, what you need to address. And, you know, going back to some of the events, until we had, I mean, social media causes a lot of pain. But one of the things that social media has done is it has really illuminated uh, a lot of problems we have by providing us snapshots, pictures, real-time events that we see with our own eyes that are really kind of permeating into society and going, oh, my God, we need to work on that. And some of them are quite serious, like this case. And, you know, um, know, kind of rolling back to the case, Bill, I I would say, you know, um, when we talk about the federal hate crimes um, hearing, um, you know, and talking about racism, you know, racism in and of itself is not a crime. But as Adrian said, when you use that as your motivation for harming someone, it becomes a federal hate crime or in this state, a state hate crime. And, you know, I always look at it this way. The key is, would they have treated a person who is white differently? Right. Would, would that person in those exact circumstances be dead today, um, you know, if they'd been a different color? 
And um, one other thing I would mention, too, is that, you know, uh, in terms of prosecutors, you know, there are two outcomes or, or two reasons to engage in this um, this uh, this hearing. Um, and one is it does signal from the federal government, from the Justice Department, that this is important, that we are going to prosecute cases like that, because nothing makes a difference unless there's enforcement. The Voting Rights Act, all of those things didn't matter until there was enforcement. Um, so, you know, I think this is important, but there is a risk, you know, you never know what will happen with a jury trial. And, you know, it's a good thing that they do have a serious judge who has a long history in Brunswick, been in Brunswick as um, a, I believe that she actually had been a U.S. attorney there, had been mm -hmm. a, um, a magistrate judge there, clerked in that court when she got out of UGA Law School. I actually personally know Lisa. She was one of my mentors, and she served at UGA Student Judiciary um, uh, just a couple years ahead of me. So the other thing, too, you mentioned, um, you know, bracing. You know, this is symbolic, and I think that, you know, they are really concerned about reaction to it. But that's another thing we're going to have mm -hmm. to deal with. Adrian, before we take a break, weigh in on this. So I just wanted to say that, you know, it's important because um, to Audrey's point about the enforcement, um, I was reading and listening about the Rooney rule, right? There's a black coach bringing a case right now about not being hired, I think, at the bills, right? And um, the Rooney rule was doing some nice work for quite a while, but we've hit a point where it's not being enforced by the NFL. Um, I've basically lost the major provision of the Voting Rights Act. Um, now we're, um, you know, threatening to end affirmative action in higher education. Um, you know, we could easily enter a phase where we act as if racism is not a problem, it is not a priority, and it doesn't need to be enforced. And I find that to be particularly problematic. Uh, Chuck, as we get to a break, I do think it's important to point out that Ahmaud Arbery's murder did lead to the Georgia legislature and Governor Kemp signing the, fr the first hate crimes law in the state of Georgia in two decades. We'd had one some 20 years ago, the state Supreme right. Court threw out because it was too broad. It took those two decades to get the legislature to uh, face up to the fact it needed a hate crimes law, and it was Ahmaud Arbery's murder that really uh, motivated the final uh, 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 decision to go ahead with that law. So I think, Chuck, we do have to give uh, the legislature some credit. And, and have, had that law been in effect when he was killed, the question, he may have faced state hate crimes. Uh, 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 I guess a, uh, the punishment phase would have perhaps uh, addressed it as a hate crime. Right. Well, it probably have been another charge that uh, would have been before the jury in that single trial, yeah, that he would have been charged both with hate crimes as well as with murder and manslaughter and the other elements that were all proved at that trial. So, yeah, it does show that the legislature is educable, that it moves along. But the tragedy is that it takes a tragedy to sometimes move uh, decision makers to take steps that probably should have taken quite some time in the past. All right. Um, thank you for that conversation, all of you. Let's do this. Let's get to our uh, first break of the show when we come back. Boy, if you blinked, you might have missed the fact that on Friday, in just a matter of hours, the entire Buckhead City movement, at least for this session, completely collapsed. We'll talk about that and a lot more after these messages. 
great panel of political scientists on the show today. Uh, Adrian Jones of Morehouse, Audrey Haynes and Charles Bullock from the University of Georgia. Um, so uh, uh, late last week, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution published an interview with Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, not even running for another term in office, but nevertheless, as Lieutenant Governor and President of the Senate, a man who still has a good deal of power in determining what uh, legislation is introduced and, and has an opportunity to pass. Duncan said he opposed in unequivocally the Buckhead City movement, um, which was already facing some troubles anyway. But within hours after Duncan's interview was published, uh, Speaker of the House David Ralston, who had not weighed in on this issue, said this. It takes, uh, in a bicameral legislature, it takes two chambers to pass a bill. The Senate was very clear, um, and um, I respect their decision. The problem of how we got here is not solved, uh, and uh, uh, that being the crime problem. Uh, and uh, I'm going to be watching to see uh, what uh, action is taken by uh, the leadership here in the city of Atlanta. I'm hopeful that Mayor Dickens recognizes the importance of the problem, and I'm, I'm uh, inclined to believe that he does. Chuck Bullock, uh, you cannot pass legislation if you have both the lieutenant governor and the speaker of the House opposing it. <laughs> yeah, he's that old saying that if you want to pass a bill, you went and talked to the governor and then the speaker and the lieutenant governor. They all said, yes, your bill was going to pass. And here we've got two of the yeah. three who are saying that they're not going to support that. Uh, I think probably they're partially motivated by letting the new mayor see what he can do, give him 100 days, or really it was a matter to be a year to see if he can get a handle on this. Uh, and I think also probably something that hasn't been said, but is lurking in the back of their minds, and certainly and this is very true in motivating Tom Murphy, and that is the recognition that uh, what's good for Atlanta, even though the rural folks may not agree with it, is going to be good for the state of Georgia. And if you somehow impair the economic development the attractiveness of the city of Atlanta, the entire state is going to suffer. And then there's yeah. also something political behind this, too, I think. Uh, 75% of the Republicans in the state Senate had signed a letter discouraging the gubernatorial candidacy of David Perdue. Well, David Perdue has pretty much signed on saying, yeah, he's very much in favor of uh, the secession movement. So maybe there's also some thought among those same Republicans that, Let's don't give David Perdue a win on this. Let's uh, not let's take this off the table. I mean, again, maybe it comes up in a year again, but they're not going to kind of position him to take credit potentially for saying, "Hey, look what I was able to do on my way to trying to become the next governor." So, um, Adrian, uh, uh, Chuck referred to, to uh, you know, the fact that rural communities understand the importance of Atlanta. And this was one of those issues where no one in the uh, 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 legislative delegation, no legislator who represents Buckhead supported this. So this was not just a city issue. This was, in fact, people around the state looking and saying, hmm, if the legislature is going to start uh, 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 not paying attention to local legislators and take it upon themselves as a whole body to pass legislation that might affect a community where no legislators from the community agree, that could hurt us as well. So, Adrian, your thoughts on this? 
I mean, I think this point about Atlanta is uh, very important. Um, Atlanta is good for the state um, as much as some might not want to believe that. Um, looking at Atlanta's history of white flight, um, and I think this topic, again, is another example of how racism is at play. Um, it needs to be addressed. Um, because, I mean, for me, every time I read about Bill White, even very early, I'm, I'm glad to see that his reputation is not as strong as it was. Um, it would just sort of blow my mind to realize that he was an LGBTQ um, community member who, um, in my mind, is pushing this race-based crime separation from Atlanta um, that I think deserves more discussion. Um, I'm really pleased at the progress that the mayor has been able to make um, and that he came on fresh and um, excited about trying to make sure that Buckhead, Buckhead stays um, within Atlanta. And I think it's important that we talk statewide about why this is important. Um, Audrey, just to pick up on the Bill White theme, he, of course, was the guy who came in and really energized the uh, Buckhead City movement. And to give him some credit, he raised $2 million. He was holding community meetings regularly, encouraging people to support the effort. But he may have worn out his welcome uh, in a couple of ways. Uh, he's very flamboyant. He, he last week uh, attacked Jeff Parker, uh, the beloved head of MARTA, who sadly committed suicide. And Parker was really well thought of by members of the legislature and many others. And Bill White actually raised the question of whether Parker had killed himself because of financial misdoings at MARTA. And that really stuck, struck a chord with some legislators, and Jeff Duncan, who said, I can't believe that he would make a statement like that. He retweeted a white nationalist statement. So this movement may move on, but it's questionable as to whether Bill White will be uh, welcome to be a part of it moving forward. No, I was thinking to myself that somehow or another he got a hold of the same Kool-Aid that Rudy Giuliani had been drinking for a while. You know, mm. it's like somehow there's this transition to being someone who has a, you know, a, a, a decent reputation, but and then suddenly there is this shift to you know, what is driving this? If you went to the the blog that he retweeted and read it, you'd know in two seconds that this was, you know, a super, you know, highly white nationalist uh, website and, you know, just raising what would be considered very cringeworthy, non-substantiated rumors about a, a person who was loved across the board by Republicans and Democrats alike. And, you know, his his family made it a point to share about his depression and the suicide so that it could have a positive effect. And, you know, people could learn again from a very sad and painful event, kind of going back to what we were saying. But I would argue, too, that, you know, you know, people really matter. I mean, Andre Dickens doing all that work immediately, going in and really, you know, talking to everybody about what he's going to do and building those relationships and Bill White sort of doing the opposite, losing all of his, you know, uh, his political capital with some of the acts that he was taking. And more of the viewpoint that a lot of what was going on with Buckhead really wasn't about, you know, just crime. It was about, you know, 
perhaps a, a, a racial motivation. You know, we don't want to be with, you know, Atlanta because Atlanta is this and we want to be this. And that's ugly, too. People don't like hearing that. And then finally, Jeff Duncan. One last thing. Jeff Duncan came to applied politics at the beginning of uh, last semester, and he talked about policy, policy over this notion of just following people um, because, you know, that's the thing to do. And so this, this is right in his wheelhouse. Policy matters. And he raised the policies like, what are we going to do about crime schools and bonds? You don't just pick up and create a new city. You have to really examine it. And this wasn't done in a systematic, thoughtful manner. And a lot of the citizens and the business leaders were not really happy about it either. Chuck, let's frame it in terms of electoral politics. I would think that Brian Kemp has to be very relieved that this uh, has happened, that it's dead for the session, because, of course, David Perdue was making this a big He talked about it in the first days of his campaign. He advocated for creation of the city of Buckhead, and the last thing Kemp needed was to have pressure uh, on, on, uh, around that issue on him as the legislature advanced that bill, Chuck. Well, that's exactly right. So now, yeah, he doesn't have to to jump in on this uh, or kind of defend you know, why he's not supporting it. It's, it's, the legislature has taken this off the table. So what we're really seeing once again is that the leadership of the legislature, you know, these are the adults in the room often, that they tamp down some of the ideas which play well with uh, some parts of their own party. And so I was thinking, yes, here they've protected the city of Atlanta, going to maintain it as whole. In similar fashion, remember some of the move in recent years has been, well, the legislature, at least some members of the legislature are saying, well, let's take the Atlanta airport away. Let's put that under state control. And again, you know, the legislative leadership, you know, quietly says, mm, that ain't going to happen right. But that, again, is not going to be good for the economy of the state. And therefore, yeah, you, you, you know, fellow legislator, you can go out and you can talk about this and you can fire up your, your base about it. But it just isn't going to happen. So it's good to have, say, these adults in the room who look out for the well-being of the state uh, more so than kind of what's going to promote their own name recognition uh, in the upcoming election. Um, oh, Adrian, one last point about this that I'd like to ask you about. Uh, I get what Ralston was saying. We're going to wait to see. The crime problem isn't going away. Uh, Andre Dickens has to have some time to solve it. But there, there's a sort of a, it strikes me, a fallacy in that part of the argument. The, the Buckhead City movement, uh, the folks in charge of that were never able to explain in any specific detail why separating from the city of Atlanta would suddenly ease the crime problem in Buckhead. So to some extent, yes, Andre Dickens has to solve a crime problem, but it's not just Buckhead. Um, he's got to solve pri- cr- uh, uh, crime uh, across uh, the city. And, and in a lot of ways, that's the larger and more important point. I mean, it's, a, it's all the way across the city. I mean, don't we have crime across the state also? Um, but I think it gets characterized as this um, race issue, as something that can be fled. Um, and, you know, then we need to look at those crime numbers. Is all of that black on black or black on white? I'm saying, what exactly are we talking about? Um, and, again, the quality of life and the economy in Atlanta matter. And um, ideally could have some positive impact on the state. And I think we need to talk about 
um, not talking about crime simply as a racial issue or moving away subconsciously from believing that that is the problem and trying to address um, in real time, making sure citizens are safe um, and making sure that Atlanta operates smoothly so that people want to live here. Um, one very final point about this, Audrey, again, framing it again in electoral politics is um, if Stacey Abrams is an ex-governor, uh, the question is whether the city hood movement will die completely. She certainly will never support it. Now, um, yes, I would have to agree with that. I mean, that is a good point. Um, and I see Chuck has something that he wants to share. So I'm going to agree with you, Bill, and then pass it on to Chuck. <laughs> okay, yeah, this, Chuck. Yeah, this, this is one of those situations where you know we have a very complex problem, and the thought of some people is, well, we can you know turn that that political machine, turn a switch here and flip one there, and that's going to take care of the problem. Well, no, the underlying problem is what causes crime. Yeah, creating a new city is not going to take care of that. It's not going to eliminate the problem. Thank you for uh, uh, putting that much more succinctly than I did. I appreciate it. Um, let's do this. Let's go to our final break of the show. We'll be back with more on Political Rewind. Uh, by the way, uh, uh, Sam Burmas Dawes just sent me a note uh, telling me that I really should point out that uh, Benjamin Payne, who's the head of our Savannah Bureau, is down in Brunswick at the court. He's outside the courthouse and will be reporting on this for GPB News, uh, both on our, our website, on our digital platform and on All Things Considered later today. So I wanted to make sure you know you can follow it uh, there. Uh Chuck Bullock, I, I, I'm interested in your thoughts about the Mac Mattingly essay that uh, appeared yesterday in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Um, Mattingly, who, who for those who aren't, you know, don't steeped in the history of Georgia politics, was a senator here from 1980 to basically 1986, upset victory in 1980, became the first Republican to uh, win statewide office in, since, I think, Reconstruction, and, uh, and of course, um, served one term before being defeated by Democrat Weich Fowler. But yesterday, uh, here's what Mattingly said. There are dark clouds on the horizon that must be addressed by all who bear goodwill toward the sustainment of our democracy and its vital institutions. We must not be afraid to face these challenges, even if it calls for us to firmly stand up to those within our own community or political party, because the preservation of our democracy is greater than the fate of a temporal political party or the maddening crowd. So with that, Mattingly joins the ranks of people like Jeff Duncan, who have rejected uh, Donald Trump and the big lie. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's valuable that Mattingly, who was one of the grand old masters of the Republican Party, is willing to say that. Um, what, what would really be helpful, though, would be if individuals who were still in the political game were saying this. And so, yes, Jeff Duncan has said it and has written this book, uh, GOP 2.0, but now he's stepping aside. Chris Mattingly has been out of public life now for 35 years. Uh, so it's good to be said. Uh, glad he did it. But I'm not sure that that necessarily does anything to tamp down the belief in the, the big lie, which is fairly pervasive among, not fairly, it's quite pervasive among Republican uh, rank and file within the state. About three-fourths of Republicans, it looks like from polling data, 
believe that Trump won the presidency, that he won Georgia, uh, the more Republicans who step up and say, no, that's not the case, there's no facts, factual basis for it, is good, and I'm glad that he did it. Uh, Adrian Mattingly, in his piece, also took on Democrats, mm-hmm. saying that uh, that they had opposed uh, Trump, uh, obsessively demonstrating their pure hatred toward him and anyone who is not one of theirs. He calls that equally uh, disturbing. So he gives it to both sides. But the reality is this essay is much more focused on his Republican uh, friends who, as Chuck points out, continue to support the big lie. Um, I got to that paragraph and decided that, you know, that was his attempt to be diplomatic, right? It was like the Trump's comments in Virginia about being there being problems on both sides. And I just don't buy it. <laughs> um, I also, you know, to Dr. Bullock's point, you know, I wanted him to weigh in on and Audrey on whether or not it's possible to disabuse people of the big lie. I mean, I feel like it's out there now. We're talking about it. I'm on the radio talking about how they're trying to ban CRT. I know that's not accurate, right? I'm saying you're subsumed into these conversations that are just patently ridiculous that I feel like are preventing us from making real progress um, if we would be able to talk about real things. So, I, you know, Adrian, I'll tell you one thing that is um, that gives me a little hope. You know, I was just looking at Gallup poll and looking at the trends from um, 21. And, you know, in the end, uh, you know, uh, one thing that has changed that might not be so great for Democrats is that, you know, they've declined a little bit in terms of their overall partisanship and Republicans have increased. But the big thing is independents. Independents are a very large portion. And usually when you see those increase, it indicates some dissatisfaction with both parties, you know, and it takes a while, but usually there's some point where people are going, this is crazy. They can't even solve problems. We've gotten so extreme. And, you know, usually the rhetoric is I'm tired of both parties and people hear that and they start responding. Um, And, you know, we will, the big lie, you know, if there is continuing pushback, you know, there will always be people who believe in something like that. But it really depends on what all the rest of them do and how they are vocal about it. Um, It was fascinating to read it. And Chuck, one of the things about it, 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 that essay was, it has been such a very long time. You you obviously uh, would have dealt with Mac Mattingly. I got to know him very well when I was down here when he was still in the Senate. And and it was it was just in a personal way kind of nice to hear his voice again in uh, politics, even though he's been out of the game for quite a long time, Chuck. Well, it was, yeah, yeah. Again, yeah, he's been retired down there in St. Simons, and uh, yeah, he's, he's still thinking about politics and saying saying worthwhile things. Um, you know, the, the question of you, know, what would it take to to really convince people otherwise? Mm-hmm. Probably the, the one thing that might move some people would be if Donald Trump were to come out and say, hey, you know, I rethought it and I really didn't win. But what we see <laughs> yeah. is that even when Trump says, even if he says things like you know, go out and get a vaccine, he gets booed by his, his own MAGA hat wearing followers. So, <laughs> so as Audrey says, you know, you know, some people are going to always believe this and they go to the graves believing it. 
Yeah, yeah. Audrey and then Adrian. Yeah, just one follow up. I think the thing that would help the most is if a lot of people who are advocating for the big lie in the in, the, in elections right now, if they lose. If you have people who come out and vote for, I don't care if you're voting for a Democrat or a Republican, just vote for the one who's not lying. In fact, right now, Jody Heiss, who's running for Secretary of State, is talking about hyping his um, his fly around, the stop election integrity fly around, go at 12 stops. Um, so, you know, if people vote for uh, less chaos, more truth, more working on real problems that affect everyone will we'll uh-huh. probably do better. And that will make a big change because base politics cannot work forever. I'd also like, I like this, and I also like the media, some attention to media. Um, you know, I feel like, uh, you know, I hate to say it, but like Fox News is not telling the truth. Um, I read this weekend in the New York Times about uh, January 6th folks making threats against Congress people. Several of the stories indicated that people had been watching the news. They had gotten hyped up, um, probably to their detriment. Um, you know, they probably did not intend to call up Congress people and threaten to lynch them. Um, but this is the result, right? The, the media just sort of feeds and feeds these ideas that um, people are absorbing on a continuum. I, I don't know uh, how to make that stop, but it needs to stop. Okay, <laughs> thank you for that. Um, let, let's move on. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, Audrey. What do you make of this new uh, conservative Christian uh, uh, effort? A couple of organizations have come together and want to create a uh, a souls to the pole effort in rural Georgia, um, primarily, of course, for white voters. We know that Souls to the Polls has been a very successful uh, 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 tactic that black churches have used now for a long time to bring people out to vote, typically for Democratic candidates. And now you've got these conservative Christian organizations saying we should do the same thing in rural Georgia. You got to say, any effort that gets more people to the polls, getting some voting, isn't a bad thing. But it's interesting they recognize that Sunday voting really can be a powerful tool. Uh, Perhaps they can. But, you know, problematically for me, I look at some of the quotes coming from this organization and some of the language that's being used. You know, co-optation of the word patriotism, patriot souls to the polls as though to the exclusion of others and those in urban areas. And let me just quote one thing. This is from one of the leaders of Look Ahead, who um, is part of this organization. Uh, He said, for too long, rural Christians have been disenfranchised in the state because progressive urban counties had the opportunity to vote on Sunday and engage in souls to the polls operations. Well, one, any county could have engaged in this activity. It's a, you know, it's a county level decision. SB 202 actually keeps that. If they want to, they can. And I would argue that first, rural Christian voters have never been disenfranchised in this state unless they were black. And if they were black, there was plenty of time where they were not even allowed to vote. Um, and uh, I think that what we're hearing is more sort of the politics of racial grievance than actually trying to solve a real problem. And while that is a great thing to, you know, bring more people to the polls, 
I would guarantee you that any of those individuals who wanted to vote and if they wanted to organize on Sunday, they could. Um, rural white voters have been turning out. Chuck? Uh, and that would be that um, you know, Republicans, and Kelly Leffler, I guess, would be the showpiece for this, have also done what uh, Stacey Abrams did, and that is look back and say, well, we got seven plus million voters and five million turned out and voted, which was a record for us. That means that whether you look at from the Democratic side or the Republican side, there are an awful lot of people who could vote who aren't voting. And as a state, you know, we're now a very evenly divided state. And so there are incentives on both sides to do whatever you can to mobilize your people and get them out. So, yeah, it, uh, both, both sides are going to try to do whatever they can to get their folks to the polls, which is good for democracy. Adrian, it, we do have to point out that when, last session, when uh, Republican bills came in in a flurry to change voting laws in the state, um, one of the big efforts initially was to eliminate Sunday voting entirely. It, but the outcry was so enormous because clearly it was targeted at black churches who were doing such an effective job of getting black voters to the polls that they had to withdraw it. Uh, who knows whether that might have gone forward if there hadn't been public outcry over it. So it is interesting and ironic that now uh, with Sunday voting, uh, still legal in Georgia, that it's white Christians who are now pushing Sunday voting. I think probably not ironic, probably strategic, right? If I can't cancel <laughs> Sunday voting, what do I want to do? I want to co-opt it. <laughs> All right. Um, we are out of time. Uh, for it. Audrey, you want to make one last point? Well, I just did want to point that polls to the polls came out of the civil rights movement when there was so much uh, discriminatory action and, and suppression of votes. Audrey Haynes, thank you for getting that last point in as we run out of time for today's show. Um, Audrey, Adrian Jones, Chuck Bullock, I, what a Great conversation. Thank you. This is another one of those shows when I feel so lucky to be able to sit here and listen to all of you with your analysis of stories that we're covering in the news these days. So thank you very much for being with us today for Political Rewind. Um, very quickly, tomorrow on the show, we're going to take on a special uh, topic. We're going to look at the whole subject of guaranteed income, which um, has become a bigger and bigger uh, a movement in recent years. Tamar Hallerman, who will be with us, has been writing about it, and she'll join us along with a great panel to discuss where is this guaranteed income movement headed. That's tomorrow. In the meantime, I hope all of you will take care, stay healthy. Uh, a lot of people think you should keep wearing a mask. I hope you do personally. Um, whether you do or not, go get a booster shot if you don't have it. See you all tomorrow.